This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, good evening, folks. Welcome to Litbooks for our fourth installment of the Bookmark Live recording. So pleased to have you guys with us here on a Thursday evening. I think, as many of you know, we are talking about science fiction today. I think most of you know already what, what, what's going to happen here tonight. Uh, Uma is going to be here um, talking to two, two of his guests, and uh, this show will be broadcast on BFM at some point. So without further ado, I am going to leave the rest of the introductions to Uma. So big round of applause for him. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampake Pagan. It's time now for our monthly live sessions over at Lit Books in Tropicana Avenue. The bookshop's proprietors, Elaine and Minhan, are kind enough to lend us their space to hold these bookish chats. And in August, we decided to take a look at how the science fiction and fantasy genres give us better insights into our world. At last month's session, I was joined by literary critic Shamala Ganesan and comedian Jason Leong. Go on and have a listen. The topic today is pretty simple and straightforward. It's about how science fiction and fantasy kind of informs our world or how we turn to these books to better explain the world around us. There are a lot of those who call themselves literati who quite readily dismiss and write off genre fiction like this one. You know, it's nothing more than just being escapist fair, right? And I think a lot of that has to do with how, how the genre was perceived, how both science fiction and fantasy was perceived for the longest time. Uh, marketing of literature doesn't help either when people like Ishiguro and Margaret Atwood get shoved in literary fiction when they're clearly writing science fiction because, you know, you wouldn't want to be buried with Neil Gaiman and Isaac Asimov. How could you, right? That's not right. That's why they coined the term speculative fiction, but it's all really the same thing. For us... I think we found that science fiction and fantasy has been a genre that has always that has always sought to explain and engage with genuine world problems. So what we're going to do today is we're going to sit here and talk for a little while and maybe give you some examples of books that we can turn to uh, in this world of ours, uh, whether it's in Malaysia Baru or in Brexit England or Trump's America, books that may have started off as something speculative, but now feel like required reading. I, I don't think it's going to be long before schools will start recommending some of these books as required reading because they are the only way to explain the world around us. When immigration agents are tearing mothers away from their children in America, it feels like it's something out of an X-Men film. But actually, it's just happening every day. So today's topic is incredibly niche, I know. Uh, so if you're here, you must read it. Uh, but before we begin, I thought I would ask the both of you, uh, before I go into mine, to talk about your first encounters with the genre. Well, um, my first encounter with speculative fiction, um, by which I mean things that are make-believe or haven't happened yet, uh, would actually have been, I think, Similar to many English-speaking uh, children growing up in Malaysia, it was probably with Enid Blyton. So, <laughs> I got to go first. <laughs> um, so, Enid Blyton was probably my first, if you're not counting fairy tales and, and mythology and so on. But I think maybe moving on a little bit from there, um, I progressed to Diana Wynne Jones, and I read lots and lots and lots of Diana Wynne Jones. And when I was a child in KL. Uh, you know, several decades ago. Uh, 
it wasn't, you know, there was no internet. You didn't, you came by books the old fashioned way, which is digging through a shelf in a store. And I came across this book with this cover of a girl and a boy and a dragon behind them. And it was one of the Crestomancy series by Dinah Jones. I didn't know who she was. I'd never read anything by her before. I didn't know what the stories were about. I read one chapter and I was just completely in love. So that was how I first started reading, I think, books that were... Because Enid Blyton, I think, still felt like something your parents would pick for you. Dinah Wynne-Jones felt like something that you discovered by yourself. So that was my first foray into fantasy and then eventually science fiction. Yes, my, mine was also uh, Enid Blyton. Uh, Enid uh, painted a very comfortable, safe world. Uh, for me as a child and also uh, it really made me want to visit England because she always says that oh it's very sunny in, Eng in England but it's always summer but it's horrible weather uh, that's the fantasy part lah, for any, for any better. Uh, but then, uh, and, and from then, and then as, as a kid, I, I played a lot of video games and you get exposed to the fantasy and science fiction genre through there because video games are Video, ga video games are art, you know, in the way they describe the world. It's a lot of reading. You get to, into the lore. And, but the most thing, my, my, my most profound encounter with the genre uh, in fantasy is with Game of Thrones. You know? uh, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan uh, to the point where I obsess about the books a bit too much. I've read each book at least seven to ten times, each book. Uh, I also bought the uh, Sajara textbook, The World of Ice and Fire, which is like a, like a history textbook of the world before the... Uh, a he really thousand. is obsessed. Yeah, a few thousand, I think a thousand years in the, the world before the first episode of Game of Thrones. Um, and you know, like it, it's when you when you read about George R. R. Martin, he'll say that um, actually uh, the stuff that he thought of in the, the books is just a reflection of uh, actual history. The, the Red Wedding, where you know the he, uh, the phrase butchered everybody, is based on an actual event in Scotland where this this head of a clan invited the other clan for dinner under the guise of uh, uh, guest rights and then come inside and then he, he, he serves him a, a, a head of a, a bull or something and that's a, an omen of death and the guy knows, oh, I'm going to die and then they had a mock trial, take him out and kill everybody. So it's a, it's, it's a reflection of history and uh, you mentioned also like how it's like here in Malaysia. Uh, I have yet to see a, a trope or a, a story where a uh, 93-year-old man uh, rises from the ashes to, to become king again. You know what I mean? Like, I've never... Sometimes Malaysia Baru is a bit crazier than fantasy. <laughs> Although with the PKR elections coming up, Game of Thrones, I think, will be a very good mirror as to hey! what is happening there as well, right? <laughs> yes. So, it's interesting. When we talk about, I guess, science fiction and fantasy, a lot of what we're seeing and a lot of what was predicted might happen uh, with Brexit and Trump's ascendancy is that publishers were saying that we may see a rise in more dystopian fiction over the next few years. I don't know whether that will actually be balanced out by the opposite, because sometimes when you're in the quagmire, the last thing you want to write or read is more about the quagmire, right? <laughs> so I don't know if that will give rise to some kind of utopian fantasy. Um, the interesting thing about dystopian fiction which is, I think, very true to the world we live in right now, is that any piece of great dystopian fiction, half the population needs to believe they're living in a utopia. At least half, right? So there is a group of people who think it's a dystopia. But there needs to be a large majority who are actually happy with the way things are. And I think that explains a lot. I mean, when you start reading those kind of works, it explains a lot with what's going on in America, with what's 
um, happening here with Malaysia, with marginalized and fringe groups at the moment and how they are reacting to this new government. I think it, it, uh, these kind of genre pieces actually do a lot to explain the situation we're in because a lot of the time we're just scratching our heads going, why is this happening? But fiction can actually do a lot to explain that to us. For me, my first encounter would have been children's editions of 1984. They had the actual Orwell text, but I remember having like a kid's version which was really weird because it was like abridged and illustrated and I don't know why my parents bought it for me. Like. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's like reading Watership Down or something. You just get really traumatized by what's going on. Read last, I'm any blighten. No, no, yeah, yeah, okay, fine, any blighten. Happy, happy. Happy, happy, yeah. And then if you've read 1984, when you grow up to a certain age and you read 1984, there's Aldous Huxley and Brave New World, and you've done the whole compare and contrast thing in school at some point, I'm sure. Lots of Philip K. Dick, Isaac Asimov. All of these things, while speculative and science fiction, actually speak more to the world around these authors at the time than than a lot of contemporary literary fiction, I think. I think that's actually what's interesting, right? When you said about this idea of are we going to be seeing more dystopian fiction, I think in many ways dystopian fiction or, or speculative fiction or whatever you want to call it has actually been side by side with more serious quote-unquote genres, you know, since practically forever. There's been mythology for as long as there's been history. Um, and often the speculative tends to speak much more significantly to our fears and, and, and anxieties, sometimes perhaps more than literary fiction because it allows a space to talk about things as they could be, as possibilities, rather than as they are. Um, one of my favorite pieces of science fiction, okay, it's a bit of a cop-out because uh, it's a video game. How many of you here played the video game series Fallout? Yes. All right, okay. Now, if you delve deeper into the lore, you realize that Fallout is uh, for, for those of you who don't know, Fallout is set in a few hundred years from now in a, in a, in a divergent uh, history. It's the same Earth but divergent. So uh, in the future, there's a nuclear war and everybody is wiped out. So the remaining survivors are what we call the... You play as the survivors. And the story of why the world in Fallout came to be is... And if you, you read... The, the story is America and China had a war right, over dwindling resources... And then China shot nuclear, nuclear missiles, America shot nuclear missiles, and then the world became apoc uh, apocalyptic. When I, and this was 10 years ago, right? I, 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 when I first read this... I, More than 10 years already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this can't be. This can't be. Ah, this is very fast. But now, as an adult, I look back, oh my God, this is so close. It hits, <laughs> it's too close to home. Right, you know? yeah. So, yeah, so what Shamila said, like, it, it has this power to predict what, might, what, may, what may happen, you know? Lionel Shriver's last book, what was it called? It was named after a family. The one that's in the post-economic post, post like economic fallout America. Yeah, that was a very interesting piece of speculative fiction because it was an economic apocalypse. Also, nobody called it speculative fiction. Oh, nobody <laughs> yeah, nobody called it speculative fiction, right? Um, and so she decided to... Um, yeah, it's not fiction, right? So she decided um, to write about a post-apocalyptic America which had suffered from complete economic collapse. And how would society cope in that situation? Which is an interesting idea of a post-apocalyptic world. I'm sorry, I'm using this term post-apocalyptic very loosely because in a real post-apocalyptic world, none of us will be here, everyone will be dead. Yes, I know, yeah, okay. But, you know, <laughs> it's the term everyone's comfortable with, so we'll just use that. Uh, this is what happens when you read 1984 as a child. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> so what I've asked the guys to do is uh, come up with a, a couple of recommendations, uh, one or two books um, that kind of help explain the world around us and why. Um, and then uh, we're going to open up the floor to you guys to let us know your encounters with science fiction and genre fiction and fantasy and what you enjoy, why you enjoy it. And, you know, if you have any recommendations on what we can read in this current quagmire that we're in, right? It's funny, I say quagmire, but Malaysians still have this sense of euphoria from Malaysia Baru. So we're kind of, we've forgotten about what the rest of the world is experiencing now, which is kind of... I'll censor that, sorry. Yeah, but I'll bleep that. But yeah, which is kind of rubbish, right? I mean, every time you see Donald Trump tweet, you're like, oh, there's a bigger world out there where everyone's really unhappy. Um, yeah. And you need to give us at least another month before things go back to normal and we're like, oh, this is all rubbish again, right? More pictures need to be taken down. More pictures need to be taken down. Correct. Maybe then we'll write our own dystopian fiction. More children need to get married and then we'll be like, ah, okay, back to normal. Lah. You went uh, really heavy, yeah. really fast. Sorry, sorry. I was just talking about video games. And <laughs> <laughs> okay, go, you, you go. Yeah, Sham, you go first. Um, give me one of your recommendations. Um, okay, well, the, the books... There are actually two because I kind of read them both around the same time. And the reason I'm going to recommend them is there's been a lot of talk about uh, inclusion and diversity and representation in, in many of our media and much of our popular culture. And two authors that I came across recently who both write in the um, fantasy speculative genres um, have both written what I think are very good examples of Inclusion, not just in terms of, oh, this is a female of color who's written a book, and so yeah, but also in terms of writing a story that is inclusive, that really shows you why when a story reaches out beyond the tropes that we're familiar with, you can actually create something really exciting. So one, is, um, one author is an African author named Anedi Okorafor. I hope I'm saying her name right. Um, I love this duology. She's written many things, Akata, Witch, and so on. But my favorite is this duology that she's written called uh, Binti, Binti and then Binti Home. Um, and she draws very heavily on her African um, background, particularly the Himba people, which she's from in uh, Nigeria, and uh, basically creates an sort of an alternate world, but structured very heavily around the practices and some of the mythology and some of the beliefs of her people. And this, for me, was a really good example of why um, diversity enriches us rather than, rather, than as, rather than pander to the audience and say, hey, look, we're casting a person in this movie just so we look like we're inclusive. This is a way of showing why it's important to have diversity, because it actually gives you stories that you've never had a chance to hear before. The second writer who did something very similar is actually Malaysian, Zen Cho. Um, she wrote Sorcerer to the Crown, which is basically a Regency era novel crossed with fantasy fiction. And it's set in England. It's about the story of the first um, African, the first sorcerer of African descent who's elected to serve the crown of, of this alternate magical version of England. And there are people from Malaysia in this book. There are characters who are half Indian. Uh, and, and for me, this was really interesting because for a long time, the, con the argument towards exclude, the argument for excluding people of color and pe non-white people from stories of this era was that, oh, England was mostly white at that time. There weren't any people of color um, or not in any significant capacity. So I felt like Zen's book really created an argument that this wasn't true, that even in those times, that there were actually many cultures, that even you know, the great quote-unquote motherland of England was not all uniform white and was actually open to many different cultures. 
And she does this in this really quirky, beautiful, brilliant fantasy setting, and it's just such a fun book to read. So those would be my two recommendations. Also, when you're writing fantasy fiction, who cares what England was like back in the day? It's a fantasy. No, just that, throw in some people of color, lah. <laughs> You know, I, that's no, no, why because that that's, where, never, that's where you want to draw the line at reality. Where, exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. There's like magic there dragons. and dragons. Yeah, but people but must be white. no brown people. Yeah. <laughs> Indians are less common than dragons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wouldn't they like that? Yes. Uh, Jason, what are yours? This show is just for you to grind your axe on it, is it? <laughs> Pretty much, lah. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, a, a lot of science fiction uh, books take place like thousands of years from the present. Uh, but there's one particular book that I really liked. Uh, there's a movie based on a book. The movie is horrible. World War Z. Okay? Okay? The movie is so bad. Okay? Because the book is so excellent. You know? And in science fiction, uh, it's set in, in, in the very near future. Like, it's like, and the science fiction part of it is just, like, it's just an excuse to throw the world into chaos. The, the author, I can't remember who the author uh, is. Max Brooks? Yes. He okay. uses the, uh, the chaos of the zombie or the Z uh, 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 virus to explore what would happen if society was upturned on its end. Right? And one of my favorite parts is when he mentions uh, in, in, the, in one, of, one of the American cities, uh, because now the zombies are overrunning the, the, the city, uh, they are, all the, the, the populace are trying to, they have to fend for themselves. Okay? And when they fend for themselves, uh, a lot of these middle class and upper class Americans find that their skills are ho- hopeless and useless. Like what is a PR a- agent going to do in the face of the incoming horde? What's a marketing executive going to do? So the people with real skills are the, the maids, the domestic helpers who can, who can tweak electronics and, and, and make the battery last for another 10 years, whatever. So they have the real skills. So now they are the ones on top and the ones below are the useless ones. You know what I mean? So with that little tweak, I found it hilarious. And, 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 and you, that, that's, I think, a, a good use of science fiction to, to show how quickly society can turn with just one, big, one small chaos. So World War Z. Don't watch the movie. The, the book is excellent. I'll recommend Game of Thrones, but I hesitate because I'm sure most of you already read. How many of you have already read the books? Oh, not enough. Okay, not enough. Okay, so I only recommend the books only because the TV shows fail to capture the nuance and the subtlety of, of, of the fantasy genre. There's so many layers upon layers in the books that it's a, it's a crime if you don't read the books. It's really intriguing. Um, if you read the first book, first few pages, you will never stop. Uh, hopefully you don't become like me where you read eight to ten times uh, at a go. Yeah. I, I call him up after watching episodes and then I'll be like, actually, they mentioned this one. And he'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the first book, uh, I think in page this one, uh, he's related to so-and-so. And I'm just like, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you regret you ever, asking. Yeah. So if you ever get lost like in season eight, I'll give you Jason's number. He will be happy to. And the thing is, it's not even a bother. He's just excited to tell Nobody you. Nobody asked me except you, so it's nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He can't talk and, about and, it to anyone uh, else. Yeah, and the horrible thing is the since I think season five or whatever, the the the, the authors have ju- the the TV producers have just uh, gone away from the actual source material. Well, that's because that idiot hasn't finished yeah. the yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yes. Yeah, it's so, been how many years? Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's another problem. Okay, so like you can tell that all the flag posts are there, put in by Josh R. Martin, but to go from one flag post to another, they are stretching. 
like they are they are really reaching lah, you know. So that's a little pet peeve. I have a little side hate lah. I Josh Martin, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you need to finish he your books. He does, man. I hear. Really? He <laughs> finish your books, man. Okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, okay, I'll bleep that lah. Okay. I, I I read a lot of science fiction because I just love the genre. I, I I found myself reading more science fiction of late than fantasy. Um, but I keep going back to the old, I guess, authors. Ursula K. Le Guin is one of my favorites, and there is very little that she has written that isn't prescient or just incredibly astute. Um, the Dispossessed is one of my favorite books of hers, and, and The Dispossessed tells the story of a complex pair of worlds where they run different political systems. And it's a very interesting piece of science fiction because actually it's one of the few pieces of science fiction that I've read which actually goes into the political realities of these different ideologies um, set among very good fiction. So it's not just, uh, it, it's more than just a narrative device. Um, there's a very strong plot that runs through this discourse on political ideology which is very, very cool. The other one that I really love is Philip Roth's Plot Against America. Philip Roth is a difficult read. You either love him or you hate him. Um, it's one of those, like, like a Salman Rushdie type thing. But Plot Against America is very interesting because it features the story of the aviator Charles Lindbergh who becomes America's first xenophobic fascist president. So right now, a lot of the <laughs> stuff in that book is just, yeah, incredibly spot on. Uh, and so Plot Against America does a lot to actually describe what is happening with our world today, and also, uh, interestingly enough, how American citizens themselves, in the fiction, reacted to oh. what happened. How many of you have seen The Handmaid's Tale, the TV series, or read the book? Right, so if you've seen the series, you know, in season one, uh, in one of those flashback sequences, there's the, the Women's March, yeah. right? And it's a really frightening piece of work. Obviously, the TV series was shot before the Women's March actually happened, the book was written long before something like that happened, and it's actually a frightening piece because that is the point at which the banks take advantage. They freeze women's bank accounts and they completely shut them off from the world. And oh, Handmaid's Tale is very difficult to watch. La. So Margaret Atwood um, actually says, said when the book came out that none of the things that she wrote about in the book had not already happened in a society at some point in history. So all of the things that she wrote about, whether the controlling of women's reproductive rights, the um, sort of assigning of women for the purpose of uh, rec uh, procreation, all of these things she had taken from various different uh, civilizations and societies that had happened before. And so I read the book actually fairly recently. Um, and then to see, to see the show and then to see these things materialize. And then even, even in Malaysia, when we hear about things like young girls being married off and um, men having sort of uh, total say over what happens to the women in their families. And I feel like, yeah, Margaret Atwood, this isn't speculative fiction, really. No. A lot of the time, a lot of these authors don't imagine that this will happen in America of all places. Yes. When they write yeah. these stories, they don't think it's going to happen. There's a certain arrogance there that they don't think it's going to happen in contemporary America because there are systems and processes in place to prevent that from happening. But of course, all of that's kind of turned on its head, right? At the moment, they think it happens to us out here in the third world, but that's because, you know, we're barbarians. But, um, <laughs> and now it's all happening over there, and I guess that's the most shocking thing. There's also another book by Malka Older. I think that's how you pronounce 
I'm not sure if it's a guy or a girl. I think that's how you pronounce her name or his name. Uh, it's a recent book called um, Infomocracy. And it's a science fiction work that takes place during a global election. And it's about communications and technology and how far political parties will go to influence the vote in this age of data and interconnectedness. Um, and it's a really frightening read because, yet again, that's something with all the stuff you've read about Cambridge Analytica and all that, it's, it's something that's just on the right. It's going to happen. Lah. If it's not already <laughs> happening, right? Um, and so, you know, yet again, that is a book that was quite prescient about how these elections were. Even in the last, if you look at the last American election, not the Trump one, the one before that, there was a very interesting article in the New York Times about um, uh, Obama's data centers and how essentially it was an election that was won by data gathering and information and how much they knew about their voters. And so Obama's people knew exactly where to send him, which American cities and all of that stuff. And apparently he had one of the most advanced data operations ever in US presidential history. So um, I think that article was in the New York Times. It came out, or the Washington Post, it came out like a month after the actual election. It's a very interesting piece because, yalla, it reads like so much science fiction. So I think what you said earlier, right, that you never think it's going to happen to you. How scary is it when you read books like Brave New World now? Uh, I reread it like a year ago, Aldous Huxley, and um, some of the things that he talks about, when I first read it, 15, 20 years ago, whatever, um, all of it seemed so unlikely, right? And then now when you read about, because the whole book is about how these little pleasures that you get through various technological means keep us as a society cowed into um, bowing to authority. And we do it willingly. So we share our details willingly. We submit to these um, controls willingly because it gives us pleasure in return. And that's actually not, when I reread it, I was like, but that's not actually very different from what we do now. Our addiction to likes on Facebook and Instagram, our willingness to sign up for different um, apps and, and, and social media that basically have all this information on us. And we do it without, it's not a 1984 where we're being conned into it. It's a brave new world where we're doing it willingly, willingly because it gives us momentary pleasure in return. Actually, you know what's really funny? When you think about that kind of stimulation and the kind of things that are used to cow us into a certain submission, if you will, right? A certain sense of submission. What's happening now in Malaysia is very fascinating because it is a misplaced sense of freedom that has cowed us into submission. So we've got a newfound sense of freedom. It is not complete freedom by any sense. We believe that it might be. And so our initial reaction to any sort of criticism towards the current government is, no, it's better than what we had last time. So let them do what they want for now. Give them a chance, right? Which is always the first steps towards disaster, <laughs> right? Uh, and of course, it's the exact opposite, right? It's not oppression that has done it. It's actually a weird misplaced sense of freedom that has. Last year, I was looking into Malaysian science fiction writing, and there's very little of it. Uh, the reason there's very little of it also is because it doesn't sell, so publishers don't publish it, uh, whether in English or in BM. I'm not fluent enough in Tamil, and I don't know Mandarin, so I couldn't look into those vernacular languages. But at least in Malay and English, the things that I discovered was that Malaysian science fiction writing was incredibly superficial, in the sense that 
they would address certain issues, but it was almost like a borrowed concept. So these were writers that were influenced clearly by science fiction writers from abroad and have tried to emulate that idea of an alien invasion or something. But of course, none of these science fiction writings were really used to address the pressing issues of our time. You would hardly ever find any writing that tries to tackle religion or Islam or that kind of oppressiveness surrounding religion. It doesn't happen. Meanwhile, you would think science fiction would provide the best base to talk about these things so you don't get into trouble, right? But very few people actually venture into it. Societal ailments, there were a little bit, but for the most part, the big kind of racial, biting social commentary that you get from foreign science fiction, you never really found in Malaysian writing. Do you think now with this new freedom, misplaced freedom that we have, science, science fiction writing in Malaysia will blossom? I hope all writing in, in Malaysia all, will blossom. All, yeah, like. I hope, yes. Um, because, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I read some stuff that I thought was interesting, but I know what you're saying, and I think a part of it has to do, and I'm just theorizing, I think a part of it has to do with we're still figuring out... Hmm what Malaysian science fiction is. Because a lot of our writers are influenced by this Western idea of science fiction. Yes. Um, and even our literary fiction often doesn't adequately unpack religion, race. Um, so sometimes I think that it's only as we get more writing from places like India and Africa and Latin America and China with like uh, Ken Liu and Season... Uh, am I saying it right? Season Liu? We're learning and, and reading science fiction that is not written from a place of, like, the Western lens. I'm hoping that more writers from here learn and read and evolve to be able to tackle those issues. I spoke to a professor from MU who was doing a research study on Malaysian science fiction, um, and she had a few theories as to why that was the case. Um, and one of them was that she still felt that, especially in Malay fiction, societal pressures were still very high. So meaning your parents, your family, don't want you writing about that. And so that is still a big problem that you would be shunned for addressing those issues. So science fiction or both science fiction and fantasy? Uh, so she was only talking about science fiction. Fantasy fiction also... Our Malaysian fantasy fiction, so we delve a lot into folktale and mythology, but we don't really push it enough beyond that, right? Before I open up the floor to you guys, because I want to hear your thoughts as well, a few years ago at the Singapore Writers' Festival, I met a, an author by the name of Joe Haldeman who wrote this book called The Forever War. And it was an anti-Vietnam War treatise, shrouded, of course, in the genre. Wonderful book. Um, he told me something very interesting that I never forget, and I always think it's a very interesting challenge to science fiction writers, which is he views science fiction as a giant control panel of things. And he says the problem with science fiction, unlike other fictions, because also because of the expectation of the reader, is that once a button gets pressed, it cannot be unpressed. So alien invasion, done. Time travel, done. Right? And so you really have to work harder than the previous guy to make your time travel story exciting or your alien invasion story exciting. And because the expectation of the, the reader is much higher, right? And I thought it was a really interesting metaphor for standing on the shoulders of those who came before you and trying to do better. So yeah, let's open it up to you guys. Uh, don't be shy. Just tell us what you think, what your favorite science fiction and fantasy books are. Also, if you think anyone in particular best describes the situation we are in, whatever that situation might be. 
Hey guys, um, first of all, um, I was very struck by the fact that you mentioned Fallout because it's one of my favorite series. I've played, I've, I've probably spent over 500 hours on the games in total, all of them. Um, but yeah, I am, for me, one of the things, uh, viewing off topic a bit, one of the things that uh, really struck me as my first foray into fantasy was actually Shakespeare, Midsummer's Night Dream, right? Because there's the whole uh, thing about Oberon and Titania, the king and queen of the fairies. So it's, you know, it, it's, it was part of uh, English mythology, English, Welsh, Irish, Gaelic, but it wasn't really explored in full until, you know, he concocted it into how it actually affected, like, everyday mortals and how, you know, the lives and personalities of these fairies were so different that what they were doing, we would consider amoral. But for them, it's just a lark. Yeah. And I think another series, I've mentioned this before in the first bookmark, actually, um, Dresden Files. And that, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed it is because with a lot of fantasy and science fiction, they create new worlds. But the Dresden Files was set within modern-day Chicago. So, you know, a lot of the concepts are familiar. You know, you've got uh, elements of Bram Stoker's vampire. You have the Twilight vampire, werewolf, Bigfoot. So you've got all the mythology, the urban legends, as well as, you know, little, like, little elements of things which you wouldn't think about. Like one of his pets, actually, is um, the one of the mythical dogs from the temple. You know, you see in Chinese temples, the two guardian dogs. Mm. Yeah, it's one of that. It's a food dog. And, you know, I, I, it just struck me as how fantasy is, you know, it, it takes a lot of what we are used to, what we understand, and it just adapts it into its own story. Thank you very much. Okay, one thing that I would like to point out is there's not enough credit given to Isaac Asimov, especially the foundation and the robot trilogy and the fact that they are both connected. I mean, you read... <laughs> You read, you read Foundation, you read the robot books, and then you're like, oh, yeah, they are little. then you start reading the continuing Foundation trilogies, and you're like, wait a second. Did he just connect his other books with these books? And you're like, whoa, boosh. <laughs> and But there's another thing that I like to point out is because there's always this line between fantasy and science fiction where sometimes there are books that say that, oh, technology is magic, and magic is technology. And then I think there was one Weiss and Hickman fantasy book that they did and then it was set in a fantasy world and then suddenly they started getting invaded by modern people in tanks and everything and it's so, so weird so sometimes that just juxtapos just juxtaposition doesn't really work so do you think that fantasy should be kept as fantasy or science fiction should be kept as science fiction I think if it's done well enough la, it can be a lot of fun if it's done well enough yeah. there's a really weird TV show on the CW called Legends of Tomorrow. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's one of the superhero shows, but it's a bit out there in the sense that, unlike the more serious ones, these guys can time travel in a spaceship, and you know it's nuts because they're superheroes who've crash-landed on their spaceship during the American Civil War, which is being invaded by zombies. And it's ridiculous, but there's an art to it, and there's a great sense of fun to it, and I think you can... I just love that kind of stuff. Yeah. I have a, like, a little idea for a book that I want to write when I gain my writing skills 10 years from now. Um, <laughs> oh, you're giving yourself a deadline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, uh. I can't write anything. Uh, but it's the idea of like, you know, like, uh, just imagine like a, a futuristic planet, like, you know, with all the, like, uh, all, the, all the gadgets, whatever. Uh, the, uh, a ship, uh, a fleet of them crash land into this other planet. But this planet has all like 
horse, flying horses, dragons, and stuff. And then they wage war between the fantasy world and the science fiction world. You know, and so the science fiction world they have like guns and plasma cannons, but the fantasy world they have magic and arcana and stuff like that. You know? Isn't it? Uh, has has that any any similar book to that premise? Just to give away my age, there is a your what my age. There is an old cartoon which ran in along si- visionaries, which ran along similar lines, right? It was magic and technology. It was a, basically the earth had been wiped out and so everyone had kind of reverted back to magic. olden days. <laughs> okay. uh, and it was magic used to power technology. Ooh. It was a very interesting, yeah, it was a very short-lived cartoon. I want to see a wizard summon a fireball, throw at a, and then the plasma shield Holds it and then, like you know, what I mean, it's a very guy thing. I see you worked sorry. it out in your yeah, brain already. I, I, I wanna uh, all it's the a very action guy sequences. Thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was just thinking as you were saying. First of all, Foundation blew my mind. Okay, when Foundation was my introduction to sci-fi. So fantasy was Dino um, and Dino and Jones, and I read all of those books all at once. And then when I realized that they all connected, I was just like, this guy is the most amazing writer I've ever read. Anyway. American Gods, I think, does a pretty decent job of the technology magic trope. And, oh, yeah. And I was just thinking while Michael was talking that, like, that was one of the books where he does it, Neil Gaiman, he does it, he does it well. And it's such an integral part of the plot as well. Um, so I think it could work. Asimov's robot uh, books are quite fascinating, if only because the three laws of robotics are still used today in MIT. Um, it is the governing force behind all the robots they create. They're named after Isaac and Asimov's. Correct. Yeah. They're all named after Isaac Asimov's as well. So, yeah. So, Asimov has had a lasting impact on real science, not just science fiction. And I keep returning uh, to his complete robot all the time. There's such great stories as well, right? Just modern parables. Uh, very, very good stuff. Anybody else? I'm also a Game of Thrones fan. Yeah. Since the 90s. Oh, you see you're how, long, fan, how long I waited. <laughs> um, recently, um, they did a TV version of City and the City, China Melville. Have you guys um, read that? What's it called? City and the City? City and the City. So basically, the premise is that there's two cities exist in the same space. Wow. Yeah? So how the show showed it is that they are so conditioned that they can't see the other side, even though they share the same road. But I think it's sort of like it shows you because it's set in some kind of Eastern European place, so it's got communism in it as well. It's like, it's the city you don't see, like the poor people. So I thought that was actually a really... The book was not easy to read, but it's actually a procedural. So basically, it's a crime that was actually committed in another city, and then they found out that the girl was from the other city. And yes, here's the plug. Yeah. So this is one of the easier of his books because his other books are a bit. Um, and then um, the other one is uh, Stone Sky. If you're a Korofor, you like, yeah, I've, I'm just finished reading Akata, which is, 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 is good. But N.K. Jamison, who won three times, I think, the Hugo, she is almost fantasy science fiction, I think, because it's about people who can move the world. So there's all this seismic ses- kind of like, and that's really interesting because it has oppression, it has actually slavery, it has motherhood, huge commentary on motherhood and how do you, how do you have, kind of like have a gifted child and then the world is kind of... What would you recommend to someone who really, you really want them to get into the genre, science fiction and fantasy? Oosh, okay, we can take turns. Uh, I would, for fantasy, I would recommend... 
I would recommend Philip Pullman, actually. Because that's a nice blend of fantasy, religious commentary, or a religious commentary, rather. Um, and I think it's a very... And the thing is, you can read it both ways, right? You can completely ignore the religious commentary and have a good old time with Lyra and her daemon, but you can actually go deeper and then get so much more from the novel. So Philip Pullman, and it's an easy read as well. It's a, it's a very brisk read, and I think that's the thing you want. I wouldn't recommend something like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones because they're not brisk reads. You really need to get into it. It is so layered. Like one chapter can... The family histories alone will piss you off, lah. Uh, and so you really need to be in the mood, right? And so, yeah, it, I, it's not a gateway drug. Meanwhile, I think things like Philip Pullman, I think C.S. Lewis, I think that kind of stuff are real gateway drugs into... Actually, The Hobbit more so than Lord of the Rings. It's a good gateway drug, yeah. I love Pratchett and Discworld, but I find it difficult to recommend to people because if you don't like that kind of humour, they get turned off very quickly. Um, it's both. Pierce Anthony and um, Terry Pratchett... People just come back at me and be like, oh, there's so many puns and stuff, and they just can't take it. But I think Pratchett's a genius. Uh, actually, science fiction or speculative fiction, I would go with Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, uh, only because it's not a great book, uh, because it's not really that well written. No, no, really. And Bradbury, admittedly, kind of, it feels very polemical because Bradbury hated television, so he kind of wrote this book as this tirade against modern media, if you will. And so it feels a lot like a tirade. But the concept and the plot and all of that stuff is very enjoyable. So Fahrenheit 451 is really cool. Well, Uma stole all of mine. Uh, <laughs> it's not like those are the only books that are around. Yes, but as gateway drugs. So I'm, I'll do fantasy first. Um, I would pick both are Neil Gaiman titles, and because I've actually recommended them to people and they've actually turned them on to reading more fantasy, either Stardust or Neverwhere. Neverwhere was actually my first Neil Gaiman book. Mine uh, too. And um, it made me want to like read everything he'd ever written. So fantasy, that would be it. I'm assuming these are like teenagers and above luck. Because if it was children, I would definitely recommend like Dinah Wynne Jones or any of those. Um, Sci-fi, I think I still have to go with Asimov because again, I've actually recommended them to people. And these are people who would never read anything that wasn't like non-fiction and especially I find the robot stories, the short stories or the um, Elijah Bailey novels which are kind of like detective novels but set in like this world with a robot and those work really well to introduce people to you know because they're like oh I'm not really reading science fiction I'm reading a detective story but hey it's set in this like cool futuristic world um, so those would be my recommendations okay they took all the good recommendations um, I, for, 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 for science fiction I'll go with what they have and also Douglas Adams that was amazing I can't believe I forgot that book it's been so long I always think of it as a comedy book but actually it's a science fiction book hey, yeah you're right a yeah, lot of people a, do think a, of yeah. it as but a comedy has, a piece of yeah, yeah. Um, for fantasy uh, actually it's kind of hard for me to imagine any of my my friends who have never re re read fantasy, like why are we friends with these people? Um, uh, I, I have two, two spectrums of fantasy, right? If, if I think they, can, they, are, they, are, they won't be able to take it, the, the Harry Potter books are an amazing fantasy series because it slowly gets darker and darker and it's not just for children, it's really for uh, a mature audience, you know, and it talks about death and how you must accept death to conquer death. Wow, this is really heavy, man. And I love the Harry Potter series. A lot of layers. Love it. For, for those who can take it, I, I bought this Neil Gaiman book, which is, I can't remember the title, but it's all full of short stories. Uh, Smoke and Mirrors? 
Yes, yes. Smokes and mirrors Yeah I have that Or fragile things But smoke and mirrors is yeah. It's not Because it's, it comes in easy doses It's not You know And I mean I remember the first story Blew my mind Is about this uh, This lady uh, this, guy, this lady Who finds that Whatever happens in, in her life It happens in this little book Then she keeps reading it And then suddenly it, The book diverges Into something more uh, dark And then uh, uh, And then she Eventually In the, in the story the husband becomes abusive, whatever. But in her real life, husband dies. And then she decides to throw away the book, hoping that whatever happens in the book happens in real life. Because at least in real life, uh, in, in the book, although her husband is abusive, but she's still with the husband. So that's a very nice uh, uh, short story to introduce people to the world of uh, fantasy and science fiction. Also, just watching old episodes of The Twilight Zone, la, oh. which you can get on YouTube, I think. A lot of them are there. Uh, old episodes of Twilight Zone, new episodes of Black yeah. Mirror. Yeah. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Which yes. is probably some of the most... Yeah, uh, well, actually, the whole... Yeah, I think all three seasons, which is some of the most astute science fiction television writing. Charlie Brooker is pretty amazing. This is how amazing the, the, sto- the stories in Twilight Zone are, right? I've never actually watched the Twilight Zone series until someone... Oh, you should, uh, they keep mentioning it, so I, I went to Wikipedia it. And I was hooked on just reading the synopsis. The synopsis were, was already so good. Yeah. Uh, speaking of books that are about to be turned into, uh, adapted for the small screen or big screen, I think they're going to redo Dune, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Denis Villeneuve. And uh, that is actually, well, I mean, I do get asked for recommendations for science fiction and fantasy every now and then. Uh, it does depend on who the reader is going to be. If it's someone who's going to enjoy something that's funny for fantasy, I would actually pick The Princess Bride by William Goldman. For sure. Which has comes with... Already one-liners. My favorite, of course, is My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. On sale here. Uh, uh, For science fiction, uh, Dune. I mean, mean, Dune is great as well because I think if you read read it just by itself, it's it's, it's very accessible. But it also has very thinly veiled metaphors for what it's supposed to be. Yes. You know. But yeah, I mean, in terms of books that have really sort of informed my science fiction reading... Um, I would say that the very first book that turned me on to science fiction was probably Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I mean, even Around the World in 80 Days, which was my favorite Jules Verne, is a bit of a science fiction as well. I mean, it's like, screw, I mean, you don't have, you, you can travel around the world in, what, like, what, 20 hours now, but back then it's like 80 days, yeah, it was fun. Um, but, I mean, but I, but I think it's remarkable also how science fiction reflects the mood of the nation, which, which, which is what you're talking about. Because back when uh, Jules Verne was writing, back when Asimov was writing, and Arthur C. Clarke, who is also a personal favorite of mine, um, they were actually fairly hopeful about the future of humanity. Mm. Yes, bad things were going to happen, but there was a way out. You know, which is why Harry Seldon in the Foundation series manages to plan everything a million, millions of years in Correct. advance, right? Yeah. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Childhood's End, I mean, it's basically about humanity's evolution into a higher state. Um, of course, I mean, there was also the dystopic stuff as well. That was the 1984 and the Brave New World, um, Day of the Triffids uh, by uh, John Wyndham. But now when you look at all the contemporary science fiction that's coming out, it's really pretty much all doom and gloom. I mean, which is not to say it's not bad, right? Um, I just finished uh, Jeff Vandermeer, for example, Born. Excellent book, but it's really depressing as F, you know? And pretty much everything, I mean, it's, it's I, wish, I wish someone would be able to recommend me a contemporary science fiction that was actually hopeful. I, I don't think there is one. If you want to go into like easy, nice, really good, original, creative kind of science fiction? Comics. Image yes. comics. 
Manhattan Projects, Black Science. Uh, Actually, Black Science is fantastic. Uh, even why the last man was great because it's such a simple concept, but they just took it so far. Forget Walking Dead. That's uh, <laughs> monstrous. Um, there's so much fantasy and sci-fi in comics, especially in image comic stuff. The creator owns stuff. I think they've taken that one step further because they've actually got the art to actually complement what they're talking about. So it's easier for them to convey the concepts, the ideas. Like they can just use a artwork that they get the scientists the, art, the artists to do it and actually um, <laughs> not science fiction but uh, and I've been plugging her books everywhere that I can but Isabel Greenberg's um, uh, graphic novels uh, the one that I like the most is 100 Nights of Hero but she's done two the first one I think is called 1000 something but anyway they are they are these like beautiful little stories all set in a different version of earth sort of medieval slash prehistoric and it's about oppressed peoples, different cultures, women, queer folk, LGBT issues and everything, but all done in such a, like the, the, the thread holding them all together is the power of stories. And the art is beautiful, simple, um, just and, and very hopeful. Like, like Off Reason Times is one of my favorite uh, graphic novels uh, that I've read. And I really think that's it's because of uh, what you said, that sometimes there's so much negativity and, and like, dystopian fiction that it's nice to read something that has a certain amount of hope when you when you read it. And of course one element we failed to mention for end is yeah there, it's just a lot of fun isn't it? I mean all of the stuff we've spoken about freaking laser swords man only science fiction can give you that and that is something we will never be able to get out of our brains. Thank you so much for spending your Thursday evening with us. Feel free to uh, mingle and buy books and drink more wine and I, I'll need some clapping for the end of the podcast. And there you have it, another edition of Bookmark Live at Lit Books. I would like to thank Shamila Ganesan and Jason Leong for being so wonderfully erudite. I would like to thank Elaine and Minhan over at Lit Books for so graciously hosting us. Go on and check out the store. It is a book lover's paradise. I say that every month because it's true. Our next Bookmark Live event will be next week on Thursday, the 13th of September at Lit Books, where we'll be talking about the literature of food and eating. Search for Lit Books on Facebook for more information. I hope to see you all there. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.